Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 26th of February with myself, Andres Vantanar, and my colleagues Peter White and Harry Morgan. Uh, the first thing I really want to look dig into, Andres, is the Chinese carbon market. You've you've had a little look at it this week. You've, you've written a story about it. I'm, you know, we are worried that it may not be fit for purpose. Is it going to force all the regions of China into a kind of unified push? towards um, lowering emissions? Well, I think it might put them into a push to lower emissions. It certainly will eventually. But for one thing, I don't think it will be unified. China's provinces just have so much power over domestic policy uh, within each province. And another thing is that perhaps they should on this kind of thing, just because the social, economic and industrial conditions are so different. In a place like Shanghai, it's pretty much a first world city. And, and then you have a place like Xinjiang, which is Central Asian, and it's got loads of heavy industry and it's a desert off in the middle of nowhere. So I, I should talk about what the actual carbon market has done. They had about eight pilot projects going in different provinces and one in Beijing and maybe another city or two, which is typical. It's not a national thing. And I think I think it will be expanded to the nation, but it'll still be very varied. But what they've done is by the end of 2021, we think that they'll expand the the coverage of this market, as well as increasing the price of emissions to, to cover 2.4% of national emissions. So for now, it's still very small. Uh, the price per per ton of emissions will only be about $6, according to some estimates. And the other thing is China's targets actually don't involve uh, lowering emissions at this point. They have a, a 2060 net zero target and they have a 2030 peak target. So actually they're decelerating. So it's more about controlling reducing. growth than it is about actually lowering. Yeah. And with only 2, 2.4% of national emissions covered with a low price, it's I think at this stage, they're still not really looking at actually reducing emissions. I think they're looking at setting up a good system to do that. So the thing about China, you always have to remember, with this five-year plan, they do think ahead and they can think quite far ahead, not just the five years. Secondly, when you've got centralised control, you can get things done when you need to. And one one of um, my friends uh, is uh, one of the senior guys at Gartner and he's been over there a few times and he's just amazed at how proactive they are at getting a job done. And how you know he's, he's saying that could never happen in America. People would be arguing over it and suing people over it for ten years before anything got done. Whereas in China, they just the edict comes from above. It's agreed, bang, it's done. Um, everyone wants to please everyone. The other thing about China is, if they come out and say something, they would lose face if they don't achieve it, and they they refuse to do that. Mm. So I, I think you know there's a big complaint that that the the, the mechanisms are not in place to um, reduce emissions post 2030. They will be, as you're saying, they're growing them now. And that they, the, the fear that, oh, they're still building coal plants, they'll screw it up. But they they never screw it up. If Once they've said they're going to do it, they don't go back on it. And that's, that's I think you can take that as, um, uh, as pretty much red. And China, so China has largely launched this market. Am I correct in thinking that it starts at the start of this year? Well, that's what I've seen reported, but I think that was actually just an expansion of the existing or something similar to the existing projects. So actually, they, it goes back all the way to 2011 that they've been doing this in, in particular places, such as Beijing is one. I think Guangdong down in the south is another. But yeah, 
it, it's a little bit hard to discuss it right now because I think in a couple of weeks we'll know a lot more because you'll have the 14th five-year plan come out and that will that will set a lot of things about it in stone. We'll do a special podcast on the five-year plan so we'll, we'll probably all have a little go at that. Mm. Moving on uh, to the next story um, we're going to not spend too much time on Drax because we we do vilify them as the uh, the evil empire You've done a piece reiterating all the mistakes that uh, that come when you you um, give biomass real credit and you you let people import all their biomass from other countries where where it's not so regulated. What, what's the situation? That's the UK. It's one of our biggest polluters. Uh, it's one of the people getting paid the most for being green, and it, it does it is irksome. Is that a common thing across Europe? Um, Harry? Yeah, so it's a really interesting thought because uh, the UK's plans really don't state too much about biomass going forward. It's very much Drax in the UK in particular that is looking at, well, it first looked to gas as this transition uh, fuel away from coal, and now it's looking at biomass as this transition away from gas. So it's very much industry led rather than led by policy. And And I think we see the same across the likes of the EU. I mean, the EU's only proposed that around 2% of its power should come from from biomass. And I, and I think the problem the problem with that and going pushing any point beyond that is to power 2% of Europe with biomass, you'd need the equivalent of what would be the whole of the UK's forest, basically. So it's a huge amount of coppicing of trees that would need to happen. And it's in terms of sustainability, it's very, very difficult to scale. And that then really poses quite a lot of difficulty when you look at how sustainable it is and actually defining biomass as a renewable energy source this is one thing that we um we wrote in the article was that when you actually burn biomass the emissions can be more than generated when you burn coal just due to sort of the nature of the actual fuel itself so when you're obviously burning this you need to have it sort of offset by actually replanting these trees and if you can't do that in a sustainable way then the actual you end up with this massive massive carbon debt which just completely defeats the object yeah and theoretically you should be growing so many trees that you know, a year's worth of burning biomass, those trees should grow by that amount of carbon. But uh, what you end up with is, oh, well, when these trees are mature, we'll we'll have the carbon back. Meanwhile, there's a 25-year debt while the trees grow. It just seems a very counterproductive and counterintuitive course of action, putting carbon in the atmosphere and saying, oh, we're going to get it back. If you're going to plant trees... We should be reducing the carbon in the atmosphere, not not making it a cyclic process. Yeah, I just think when you if you get your head around climate change as a thing, you just think, why don't we just plant the trees and not cut the other trees down? It's um, sort of a no-brainer <laughs> in that respect. And, spe- and especially when you look at the actual properties of biomass compared to renewable electricity. I mean, the Drax biomass plants in the UK cost around £100 per megawatt hour, which when you compare that to their offshore wind auction recently, where it was £40 per megawatt hour, yeah. you'd think that that's absolutely no-brainer, especially if you've got the chance to stick storage on the top of offshore wind, which we definitely will soon see at, at massive scale, um, then the case for biomass... Oh, that's... that's a, hold on, there's a statement we, we've got to discuss. I've always associated um, energy storage going hand in hand with solar, particularly because when the lights go out at night, you, you need to have a steady flow of energy. So solar needs to put half of its energy into storage for the night time. So I've always seen that as a, as a natural connection. I've, all, I've never really felt that, that I've never come across enough people who believe wind should go the same way. We've seen it a little bit in China that something like 10 or 15 percent of 
wind farm capacity has to be um, fulfilled with energy storage as well. You think you think that's going to be a growing trend? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. The thing you've got to realise with wind, and especially when you th- if you think the UK as a case study, for example, Boris Johnson said we want to have all of the homes powered by offshore wind by 2030. What it means by this is that the generation sort of levels match up. So at that point in time, we'll still have some uh, nutrients and natural gas in the power mix, but offshore wind will ha- will generate enough electricity. So to make the most of it and make sure that we haven't got sort of this surplus of offshore wind capacity, we'll need things like like pumped hydro and to actually charge residential batteries using offshore wind uh, during times when it when it's just in a surplus. So it's not going to necessarily be in the same way as solar farms built with uh, co-located storage, but it will definitely be part of sort of a larger system where you're actually charging other storage resources around the grid. Yeah, the worrying thing you get, though, in, a, in anything that's got capitalism attached to it is the poor wind farms end up selling their energy at a below market price and they're separate from the storage and the storage owners make out like bandits because they arbitrage uh, the energy up to three or four times its value, which is why you've ended up with solar, doing solar and storage in the same installation because then it's the same entity. Oh, we're selling our energy cheap, but we're selling it to ourselves. And then later we're selling it really expensively. The, the, if you if you start trying to allow capitalism and trading to go rampant on this, you end up with the wind farms all going bust. Yeah, I mean, so that that is a worry, I suppose. But I think the, the thing in terms of giving offshore wind farms bargaining power in that respect is now green hydrogen and actually using that as a production means and actually having an alternative route to market for your power when it isn't surplus. So you can either use it to charge um, batteries on the grid or you can set it to green hydrogen um, and essentially whoever's the highest bidder. Okay, so you're just having more, by having more demand, more sources of demand, do you think that, that the prices will stabilise? And then they will. They will until you build one with farm too many. <laughs> when you over, but what we want, we want to overbuild. We want to do the same with solar. Um, so we, this term overbuild used to be a term associated with the cable industry in America. If someone built a cable network in a town, if someone else built another cable network, they couldn't get their money back because two two networks, twice the cost, were going after the same amount of revenue. And it's the same going to be the same in energy. We, we, we want to overbuild. We want to have a good economic basis for building 20 or 30% too much solar, 20 or 30% too much wind, so that in lean times, we, we're still getting close to a, a baseload off them, even when the wind stops blowing and even when it's nighttime. But at the, then by, by throwing storage in the mix, you can get a much more precise calculation. And you don't need so much overbuilding. But in the end, it's useful to have an economic model that allows you to build too much. And thinking about the price of hydrogen, I just want to change, add one word to that. The price of hydrogen stocks uh, or, or, or any clean energy stocks, they've taken a bit of battering this week. You had a look at what's going on with investors. I had a little look at the Lucid uh, Air SPAC as well, and they both seem to struggle. What is it? American investors suddenly have gone off hydrogen and clean clean stocks? Yeah, the article we wrote about this week sort of speculates two things. The first thing is it speculated that investors are becoming aware of a clean energy bubble, which many people are talking about. It is quite conjectural talking about, obviously, about the speculative growth of the markets. But rather than worrying that that's what's caused the dip this week, uh, it has to be noted that there's several other dynamics at play. In the US, in terms of investment, bond yields are really high at the moment. So we're seeing a lot of 
institutional investors in particular are sort of readjusting their portfolios. The Fed also trying to keep worries of inflation down, but sort of struggling to do so. We're seeing people really start to shift away from these sort of narrative driven growth stocks like Tesla and the sort of clean energy stocks as, as well as hydrogen, I suppose, towards obviously these bonds as well as uh, sort of more value stocks, which is why we've seen companies like. You're talking about the stock market as if it's one brain. I mean, there are certainly two brains, possibly three or four, but the two two brains, the two sources of money, uh, one tends to be the institutional investors who look for a link to the fundamental performance of any stocks that they're involved in and get really nervy when people invest in something that's that's five or six or seven years out like tesla tesla might grow into its valuation but it's not worth it on its fundamentals today and then you get people who are just investing their own retirement monies but there's millions of them um, who are just trading going well tesla i want to own a piece of that and 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 more aware of the nar- narrative base, as you say, and they fight and struggle against each other. Um, what you seem to be saying is that the institutional investors have suddenly got the upper hand. I think they're certainly responsible for this dip. I mean, there is also the element um, in terms of the hydrogen stocks dipping this week was due to, was, well, was largely due to the plug power results, which is slightly more disappointing than expected. So at Lucid, the company that was uh, being created for it to reverse into the Churchill Capital Core 4, i.e. it's called for number four because they've done this three times before. As it was published that the company it was buying was Lucid, it, um, it crashed and burned. The, the share price dropped to, well, 50%. It dropped from $58 to $28 in two days after the announcement. And that was really quite a savage uh, blow to a company who's, on its present its investor presentation, it looks like it's one of the very few that can keep up with Tesla uh, technologically. It, it, it's always going to be a, a, a rocky road when you, you are investing in a stock not based on some kind of mat- mathematical formula of future earnings. Uh, the American stock market, the professional investors, the people who invest pension fund monies, get nervous and yet they don't be out of stocks like Tesla, then suddenly the nerves can take a hold and then it takes a long time to build that bubble again. But I, I think that's typically what happens. It becomes cyclic. You, you uh, Companies like Tesla don't suffer too much. And I don't think Lucid will in the long term. I think Lucid, when it does go public, I mean, it's, it's, it's had an injection of almost $5 billion. It's ready to bring out a car this year and it's going to hit that in volume and it's already sold them all. Not quite, but it's already sold a lot of them. So yeah, it's not really going to affect its future. It certainly might affect the futures of companies like who was the one you said had disappointing results, Harry? Uh, plug Power. The thing is, that, most of these companies are pre-revenue, aren't they? Or they're early revenue. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that I think is driven to sort of quite a lot of the sort of caution around Lucid. Because I, I personally, I think Lucid is a really good company. I think they've got a lot of uh, promise moving forward to actually compete with the likes of Tesla. But the amount of companies we're going to see enter the stock market this year in the EV market is going to be ridiculous. And I think it's becoming more like you're betting on a horse in the Grand National because the amount of them that won't make it is going to be unbelievable. I mean, we've got people like Rivian who are going to go public this year, people like Faraday Future. So it's... Uh, yeah, uh, but, but I think you're being a bit naive on the investment front. When people, when the, the institutions 
invest in companies like that. They do it in a broad spectrum and they hedge one against the other. And often what happens in these as these markets in these markets as they grow and some of the companies look like they're going to fail, they get acquired and their customer gets get get base gets picked up by one of the ones that's going to succeed. And and you gradually shift all the failures into a successful pot. You don't take a bath on any one of them. They don't just you know drop to zero. It tends to be that um, you spread your investment, you have a you have it in a portfolio, you even spread that portfolio, uh, you have some green stocks, but some non-green stocks or some more stable ones. The aggregate continues to rise. Okay, so uh, long, we'll come back to that many, many times uh, in the future. One of the things um, I was quite interested in is Andreessen and I were talking after the issue went, to bed about the price of polysilicon and then along came a, a report saying we're going to have more um, solar this year than anyone's imagined from from bloomberg is there enough polysilicon uh, uh andres you you've looked into that yeah so um i should go back to july 2020 when there were a couple of fires and some other accidents in xinjiang in the polysilicon factories back there and that knocked off at least 10 percent of the global supply so there was this big price so they they sort of fixed that up and for a few months after that you had a, a price decline of a few percent per week and so it was looking like it would go back to normal but what's happened since the start of this year is that the price has gone back up and it's it's not quite heading back up to its peak yet its recent peak. Uh, but what is clear is that there is a limitation in supply. Uh, we knew that would happen anyway, to some extent in 2021 and 2022, uh, because polysilicon takes 18 months to build a factory. It's more expensive than the other parts of the supply chain. And of course, in China and elsewhere, the, the rest of the solar industry has been expanding dramatically, maybe by about 50% in, in a year or two. Polysilicon is kind of struggling to keep up with that. And a lot of plants began construction polysilicon in, in in July when the when it was clear that there's going to be the shortage so if it takes 18 months it, they're only going to be coming online towards the end of this year and what's happened this week is that this has started to affect the price of the modules themselves uh, Jinko Solar put their the price of their modules up and of course we've been used for year after year of declines so it's quite unusual to have a an increase in the cost of solar panels. And like you said, Bloomberg came out with this report. And I think in typical fashion, they said they forecasted it between 160 gigawatts and 209 gigawatts, which is a little bit generous to to yourself if you're a forecaster. You can never (laughs) be wrong. So 160 is the the bare minimum. I I agree with them on that. But the problem with 209 gigawatts is that there may not, I don't think there's physically enough polysilicon to actually make that much. In the fourth quarter of this year, we might get a bit more polysilicon come on stream, but it's going to be the following year before you can see a a planned expansion. We do have enough production capacity in the world, in theory. The actual production is never quite as big as that. And the other thing is the amount of polysilicon you use per watt is falling, but I don't think it's going to fall all the way to three grams. So the best case scenario would be like three grams of polysilicon per watt and 570,000 tonnes of output. And that only takes you to, what, 190 gigawatts. Okay. So there's an upper limit. I mean, we, so we, we've got to bear that in mind on our forecasts, so if there are limits like that. I mean, the problem, you, you said it's um, it's more expensive to build uh, polysilicon uh, um, factories. But what I think you really mean is it's less rewarding and that, that nobody feels like doing it because it's 
You need cheap labour. It needs to be done in cheaper parts of the world. It's not attractive for someone in Europe to start making it. Um, it's not attractive. It's not, a, and, and these companies aren't making as much profit as the as the module suppliers. So they um, they're at the wrong end of the food chain. Yeah. Um, and and scantily rewarded for for doubling the size of their efforts to keep up with the solar industry. You know, there, there's still some manufacturing left in Germany, but it's just sort of residual from an earlier time. Uh, most of South Korea's manufacturing capacity just abandoned the industry, I think this year or maybe late last year. Global polysilicon is sort of shifting into China, specifically into Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia and that sort of province where the electricity and the labor is cheap. But we never underestimate the um, ability of the module makers to plan ahead, to make sure that at least they've got enough polysilicon for their plans and and, and perhaps even contract with uh, non-Chinese sources if they have to. Just the other week, there was like 200,000 tonnes, which is a third of the current capacity was going to come online from just one company. Now that the price of polysilicon has gone up, it's it's a lot more reasonable to build new factories. So they are they all are in China. Um, but like I said, it takes 18 months. So the question is, what happens in 2021 and 2022? Because solar demand is skyrocketing.